You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. Book of Philippians, chapter 4. Read verses 4 through 7. We're going to open our time in prayer. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's ask God's blessing upon our time as we begin. Our Father, we come now to your word and our hearts have been quieted. And we pray that during this time that our minds may be focused upon what you have to say to us. We open this book because we know that it is in this book that you have chosen to reveal yourself. You speak to us through your word, which is the final authority. And we pray, God, that what we hear this morning may not be the ramblings of mere men, but that we may hear your voice speaking to us through the text and that you would give us the grace to obey what we hear. We pray that you would address us this morning, our concerns, our minds and our hearts, that we might be better equipped to serve you and to honor you in all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. I'm going to start with a question, which is going to require a showing of hands, but I want you to keep your hands down until I actually ask the question and explain the question to you. So I don't want anybody raising their hands prematurely, thinking I'm asking something that I'm not indeed asking. So here's the question. Thank you, Dave. Raise his hand. Here's the question. How many of you would say that you lead a worry-free life? Worry-free life. Now, let me describe and define a worry-free life. By worry-free, I mean that you never give a second thought to where your next meal is coming from, where what you're going to wear, if you're going to have enough clothes to wear, what's going to happen with the stock market, your financial situation, what's going to happen with your home, what's going to happen with your health, whether your kids are going to live or die or get sick, whether you'll keep your job or have your job, or what about the next job, whether the bills will get paid, whether you'll be able to stay in your house, whether you're going to be able to meet ends meet, whether you're going to get sick, when or where you're going to die, or how you're going to die, or the results of the election. I just disqualified everybody right there. How many of you would say now that you live a completely worry-free life? Now, go ahead and raise your hands. Okay, we got three or four liars that are with us this morning. (laughs) Let me ask you another question. 
How many of you would say that whether you like it or not, you find yourself caught up in worrying far too often and you know it and you hate it and it's almost as if you feel like you can't control it? Now raise your hand. There we go. Now everybody's honest. My suspicion is that sometime in the last week, if not the last month, you found yourself in a place where you have been consumed by worry. And I would bet that most of us here have a hard time obeying what Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Worry about nothing. I want to read to you again what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. We read it for a scripture reading and you don't need to turn there, but I just actually just want you to listen to this again. And I want you to think about what he is saying and listen to his argument. This is the words of the Lord. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And the Apostle Paul sums up all the teaching of Jesus in those paragraphs with this phrase, Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. That's the summation of everything Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Do not worry about anything. Now, what plagues me in Paul's words there is once again the comprehensiveness of that statement. You notice it? Be anxious for what? few things? Some things? Really important things? Be anxious for nothing. It's one of those totality words that we see so often in this, right? Rejoice always. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Be anxious for nothing. In what? In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Now, I could maybe obey the command to be not anxious if he hadn't said be anxious in nothing. Because there's things that I don't worry about. I haven't lost a wink of sleep ever in my life as to whether or not the sun's going to come up tomorrow morning. Right? Or really my next breath. I don't worry about my next breath very often. Am I going to be able to breathe? I'm, I'm, I'm not even worried right now that I'm going to get through the end of this message and still be alive. I, I don't give too much thought to that. There are a ton of things every day that we don't worry about. But the reality is that there are a host of things that we do worry about. And we worry about them seriously. And we ought not to worry about them at all. I want you to notice just a couple of general observations about what Paul says. There's a lot in verses 6 and 7 of Philippians. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a lot in those verses. There's worry, there's uh, prayer, there's thanksgiving, and there's the peace of God which guards our hearts and our minds. All of those things. Every one of them would be worthy of a sermon in itself. You say, uh-oh. Jim, how long are you going to be in these verses? I'm going to stay in these verses until I no longer am worried that you're worrying. And then I'll stop talking about worrying. 
So we will get through them. They're loaded verses and they're important verses. But what I want you to notice, just generally speaking, is that in verse 6, the words do not be anxious, they're, they're in the imperative voice, which means that it's a command. It's emphasized. It's emphatic. It's as if the Apostle Paul does not want us to just simply read it and say, okay, don't worry, I'm not worried about that. Don't worry about anything. Just keep going ahead of life. He wants us to snap to, sit up, and listen to this. Be anxious for nothing. It's also the present imperative which implies that or, or tells us that the Philippians were themselves worrying and Paul knew that their present condition was one of anxiety. And so what Paul is saying to them is stop being anxious about anything. Don't worry. Worry about nothing or be anxious about nothing. They were currently in a state of anxiety and the Apostle Paul is saying to them, stop it. Now, you and I look at that and we read that and we say, that's easier said than done, isn't it? I can stand up here and say, just don't worry about anything. And then what would you say to me? Jim, that's easier said than done. And I would agree with you. It's much easier said than done. But that's not to imply that it's impossible to do. You might say that was easy for Paul to say. I mean, after all, if he only lived in 21st century America, he would have never written those words, would he? If he had only seen our current economic downturn, he would have never said that. If he knew what I had to deal with in my job, with in my family, in my situation, with my finances, in this environment, if he knew everything that I had to face, he would never have written those words, be anxious for nothing. It's easy for Paul to say, and certainly I think it was easy for the Philippians to say, okay, I'll never worry about that, but the Philippians don't have to face the things that I have to face every day. You believe that? You think the Philippians had nothing to worry about? To find out back in chapter 1, they were suffering the same afflictions that Paul was suffering for the gospel's sake. There were people outside the church who were persecuting them. We have every reason to believe that the Philippians, some of them had probably lost their jobs, lost their reputations, maybe even lost their dwelling places for the sake of Christ. And they were facing much more than that. Paul is trying to encourage them because he knows there's more suffering on the horizon for the Philippian church. Furthermore, they're worried about the apostle, the beloved apostle Paul. Is he going to get out of prison or not? And speaking of Paul, do you think that Paul had nothing to worry about when he wrote these words? Remember, he had been arrested in Jerusalem, whisked out of Jerusalem by cover of night because 40 men had taken a pledge that they wouldn't eat or drink until they killed the Apostle Paul. So they whisk him out under the cover of darkness for Caesarea where he spends two years imprisoned under Felix and Festus and, and they bring him out every once in a while just to hear the Apostle Paul preach. Then they put him on a boat. He spends two weeks out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea being tossed back and forth in a violent storm. A storm so violent that even the seasoned sailors gave up all hope of ever surviving. He lands shipwrecked on an island, is bitten by a snake, finally makes it to Rome, and when he gets there, guess what he finds? He finds a bunch of people who should be indebted to him, but instead they're preaching Christ just to do him harm. We find that out in Philippians chapter 1. Furthermore, there were people there who were hostile to Paul. Jews who wanted nothing to do with him. Jews who opposed his ministry. Some who wanted to debate him. Some who wanted to oppose him. And remember why he's in Rome? Why is he in Rome? He's got three charges against him. Two of them are capital crimes. Sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. The Jews said he stirs up the crowds everywhere he goes. That's sedition. That was a capital crime. He could lose his life for that. Sectarianism. He's the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That was a capital crime as well, to be a, a fomenter of a false religion. And then sacrilege. He walked into the temple and they said he brought a, an unclean Gentile with him. And so Paul is 
in Rome on house arrest, and at any moment his case could come before Nero. Paul could be summed in to stand before the Caesar and be arguing for his life, and if he's found guilty, he would be whisked away immediately outside the city, and he would be executed. And that could happen at any moment. And you never know, am I going to find Nero in a good mood, or am I going to find Nero in a bad mood? And even in the book of Philippians, we find the Apostle Paul saying, look, I don't know whether I'm going to be here tomorrow or not. I would sure like to come and visit you, but really those plans are up in the air because he didn't know. He felt confident that he was going to be released, but at the same time, he expresses that uncertainty. I, I may not mean I, I may depart and go to be with Christ, which would be far better. You think that Paul had nothing to worry about? It's easy to say, oh, it's easy for you to say, Paul. Well, it's easy for you to say that it's easy for him to say, don't worry about anything. Paul didn't worry about anything. He really, as you look at the book of Philippians, as you look at the book of Acts, as you look at what Paul faced, You really see a pretty carefree guy, don't you? Really not worried about much of anything at all. What I want you also to notice in the text, do not be anxious for anything, is that this word anxiety or the word for anxiousness there is the word merimnao. It's a word that was used in the New Testament, sometimes in a positive sense, sometimes in a negative sense. It was used positively in this way, of genuine concern that I would have for you. Like Paul uses it back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, when he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you because I know of no other man who is genuinely concerned. Same word, genuinely concerned for your interest. Paul doesn't reprove Timothy there. He uses that word concern or care in a positive sense, in a positive way. Here it's used in another sense, in a negative way. Not of a genuine concern, but of a harassing anxiety. A harassing state of mind. The type of... Care that just plagues you and vexes your mind and vexes your heart and consumes you. And we're all familiar with that type of anxiety, aren't we? We're all familiar with the type of anxiety where you've got something pressing on your mind or on your heart that literally consumes all your waking hours. And you're thinking about it. And then you find yourself thinking about it and you say, I've got to stop thinking about that. I've got to focus on my work. So you get back to focusing on your work and before that long, your mind is back on that subject. And you've got to rein it in again and say, no, back to the task. I have a job to do. I need to get this taken care of. And then you try to go to sleep. And if you, maybe this is only described to me. You try to go to sleep and you get halfway to sleep. And just as you're drifting off into the la-la land where you start thinking about all those weird things like I do, it takes about 30 seconds. And then your mind snaps onto something like that and it starts churning in your heart. And pretty soon you're wide awake and your gut is just in anguish over something. And you say, this is nuts. i got to go to sleep. So you discipline your mind for a little bit. Think about something else. You finally start to drift off and boom, back you are again. And this happens into the early morning hours. Maybe for some of you, I've just described last night. For others of you, I've described probably an experience that I would bet you've had in one way or another, to one degree or another. That's the type of anxiety that the Apostle Paul is describing. A vexing, harassing care or concern that you have for something. That's the negative sense. Now friends, worry is really a natural reaction for us, isn't it? Anxiety is. Do you have a lot to be anxious over? I bet you do. I bet some of you have children that have not yet come to know Christ and you're very concerned for them. Maybe even in, in maybe even to the point of being vexed or worried about that. We have finances that we can worry about. We have the stock market that we can worry about. And speaking of things to worry about, didn't the assessor get the memo that said that property values are supposed to be declining instead of increasing? He apparently didn't get that memo, so now we have to worry about that. 
What about my kids? Are they going to live? Are they going to die? Are they going to get sick? Are they going to get terminally ill? Will they outlive me? And if not, what does that mean for me financially? And what about my friend or my relative who just got sick and just got diagnosed? Are they going to live? Are they going to die? What about my job? What's the economic downturn going to mean for the industry that I'm in? Am I going to make it through this? Am I going to make it through that? What about my children? Are they going to go to college? And if so, what college are they going to go to? And if they go to college, how am I going to pay for that college? And once they go to college, what's going to happen to them while they're away at college? And then when your child finally gets a driver's license, oh, you crank up the notch on the ratchet, on the ratchet, on the worry scale to the next degree, an even higher level. And then when it comes time for your child to start picking out a spouse, you chew your fingernails so there's just no fingernails left to chew. Is that you? Friends, I have met people, and none of them are here, nor are any of them part of our congregation. But I have met people who view anxiety as if it is a virtue. They view anxiety as if it is a virtue. It's almost like they take pleasure in being worried about something. And they have this uncanny ability to manufacture concerns out of whole cloth, and to worry about them, and to plague their life with them. It's as if they enjoy the burden, enjoy the acid in their stomach and all that comes with it. And I am at a loss to explain that. The only thing that I can come up with that would explain such people is this. Sin is pleasurable. It's enjoyable. And people who enjoy worrying and manufacture worries to worry about I think that they enjoy worrying because, in a sense, it gives them the feeling that they are in control of something. And that they are their rock and that they are able to somehow change their circumstances or alter their condition by worrying about something to the degree that they do. That's the only thing I can think of that would explain such behavior. That there is actually some sort of a, and and it might be sick, I think, pleasure in worrying about things. But we have plenty of things to worry about. Charles Spurgeon said this, you can always find a stick with which to beat a dog, and if you need a care, you can generally find a care with which to beat your own souls. Always an opportunity to pick up a worry, huh? Now, I would agree with Spurgeon most of the time. I would change that just a little bit, even though I love that quote. I would say you can always find a stick to beat a cat. Because only a cruel person would beat a dog. So you can always find a stick to beat a cat. I can't agree with Spurgeon on everything, but I will take that up with him when I see him in glory. I actually do like cats, for those of you who might be curious. I just can't eat a whole one. So, <laughs> But there are plenty of things for us to worry about, and Spurgeon was right. You can always find a care with which to beat your own soul. Now, just so we're clear as to what we're talking about and what we're not talking about when it comes to anxiety, there are certain types of concerns that are genuine, they are legitimate, and we ought to have them. There are genuine concerns that we should have, holy concerns. I'm concerned about a brother or sister in Christ who has a disease or an illness or a need. And so that vexes my soul, and it burdens me. Nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with sharing somebody's affliction, or sharing in somebody's sorrow, or sharing in somebody's grief, or sharing in their need with them, the fellowship that should be in the gospel and should be in that person's need. That's a genuine concern. That's a holy concern. I want to know, how are you doing? And I'm a little worried. That's a a right worry. If it's not a vexing worry. If it's not a worry that tries to wrest from God His sovereignty 
And worry really is not the right word to use there, but concern is. I have a concern for this individual, and when I think of what they're going through, it's on my heart. That's genuine. That's a holy concern. That's a right concern, and there's nothing wrong with that. Second of all, there are the, the attention that we give to details of daily living. There's nothing wrong with that. How many of you want to come home tomorrow night to your sweetie and say, Hey, sweetie, what's for dinner? I don't know. Didn't plan anything. Are we going out? I don't know. Didn't plan anything. Why didn't you plan anything? Pastor Jim said not to worry about anything. I didn't worry about what's for dinner. I'm not going to worry about what's for dinner. I'm not going to worry about what's for breakfast. I'm not worried about anything. The laundry's not getting done. Hey, I'm not worried about anything. Now, I say that, I give that disclaimer just so I don't get any angry phone calls or emails from men tomorrow afternoon. That, that's a genuine, legitimate concern that we have to deal with the issues of life that come up. There's nothing wrong with that, with saying, okay, I'm going to give some thought and some time and attention to these things. If you're going to plant a garden, if you want to have fresh produce in the fall, you don't say, I'm just going to pray about it. Lord, please give me some fresh produce in the fall. No, you go out and you plant a garden. And you plan your garden and you vex over it and you worry and you weed it and you do all that stuff and you do everything you can to produce fresh produce in the fall. You want to build a house? You don't just pray. Praying, if you want to build a house, is not going to accomplish anything. You're not going to wake up some morning with a new house. So you have to put together some plans. You've got to put together some effort. You've got to be disciplined and diligent. Give attention to the needs that you have in providing for your family. You have to do that. I think that there's going to be a judgment. And I say this... I say this toward my own, um, my own peers. I think there's going to be a judgment for pastors who just simply say, hey, I'm not worried about what I'm preaching on next Sunday. I don't worry about it. I just show up and I start talking. And it's evident that's all you do. I'm not giving any attention to that. I'm not going to worry about that. God says not to worry about anything, so I don't worry about that. Do I worry about my messages? <laughs> Absolutely, I do. That's a proper worry, by the way. There's nothing wrong with giving attention to the day-to-day details of living. There are holy concerns which with, with which we should be occupied. Concern for one another. That's genuine, just like in Philippians 2.20. Timothy's concern for the Philippians. There are the details of day-to-day life that we are involved in that we ought to give due time and attention and concern to. And then another thing that Paul's not talking about, he's not talking about apathy. I don't care. I just don't care. I don't care about anything. I don't care about what we have. I don't care about anything. I'm just, but I don't care. Apathy. That's not what Paul's describing. He's not prescribing for us to be apathetic toward things. He's not saying that we shouldn't give time and attention to the daily concerns of living or the genuine concerns of other people. What is Paul describing? He is describing that vexing anxiety that stirs the heart and stirs the mind. Listen to what Spurgeon writes again. This one's not necessarily a funny quote. It is good for a man to have a holy care and to pay due attention to every item of his life. That's genuine. But alas, it is very easy to make it into an unholy care and to try to wrest from the hand of God that office of providence which belongs to Him and not to ourselves. That's the difference. There's a difference between genuinely being concerned about something and being worried to the point where I try to wrest from the hand of God His office of providence and to suggest to God I can do it better. Matthew Henry said, There is a care of diligence which is our duty and consists in a wise forecast, that's forethought, and a due concern. But there is also a care of diffidence and distrust which is our sin and our folly and which only perplexes and distracts the mind. Notice the difference? Now why does Paul say do not be anxious? There's two reasons. It was 
Both of them were given in the last quote that I gave you. They're implied explicitly and implicitly in our text and in Matthew chapter 6. The first reason that we should not be anxious is because anxiety or worry is a sin. It may be hard for some of you to hear, especially those of you who think you're prone to it and you can't control it. It is a sin. Anxiety and worry is a sin. Not, not just because it says don't be anxious and so to be anxious or to be worried is a violation of doing something that we shouldn't do. It's not just for that reason, but there's far more to it than that. It's a sin not just because we're told not to worry, but because of what is behind worry. And what is behind worry? What is behind worry is a lack of faith and trust in the person and the work of God. Anytime I worry, it is my bold declaration that I do not trust God to be who He says He is, and to do what He says He will do. If I'm worried about what I'm going to eat, it is me confessing, I don't trust that He's going to provide my food. And if I'm worried about what I'm going to wear, it's me confessing, I don't believe He can provide clothing for me. So, behind all worry is a lack of faith, and a lack of trust, and a lack of confidence in who God is and what He is, and what He has promised to do. So, if I believe that God is good, and if I believe that God is sovereign, and if I believe that God is providential, and if I believe that He is all-powerful, if I put all of those together in my mind, and I honestly believe that, then answer me this. What do I have to worry about? Say, i got nothing. That's why we jump back to verse 5. The Lord is near. Paul says that right before he says, don't be anxious. The Lord is near. Once you understand who the Lord is, you understand what He has done, who He is, and the truth about your circumstance, then there's nothing to worry about. But it may be that I just don't believe that God is really powerful enough to provide for my needs. Or it might believe that I think He's powerful enough, but I question whether He is good enough to really provide for my needs. Or I might believe He's powerful enough and He's good enough, but He's really not wise enough to know what my needs are. See that? I cannot think of a single worry I have ever had in all of my life that was not sinful. Not one. I've had plenty. I shared with you several months ago. By the time that I was about 10 years old, if memory serves me correct, and I'd love to see my medical files on this, I was diagnosed with ulcers. You know what the doctor told me? It's because you worry. I'm a high-strung individual. I may not look like that to you and may not come across that way, and some of you might never guess that from being around me, but I'm a very high-strung individual. I find it very easy to worry about. Now, you take a high-strung individual and you give them some things to worry about, they will take worry to a whole new level. I had it as an art form. I could gin up things right now to worry about, and I could get myself so worried that I'm not even hungry for the tacos that we're going to have after the service today. I could get myself that anxious. Worry is an easy thing, but you know what I found? All sin is easy. Sin is always easy. I don't have any problem sinning. I can sin at the drop of a hat. It doesn't take me any thought, any planning, any foresight, anything like that. I can sin almost unconsciously. And I do sin unconsciously. And I can worry just as easily. Because worrying is sin. Second, worrying is folly. It's foolishness. And this is what Jesus was getting at in Matthew chapter 6. Who of you by worrying can add one hour to your lifespan? Anybody? You can worry about the day of your death the manner of your death, the method of your death, 
how painful your death is going to be. You can plan the funeral. You can go through all of that in your mind. And you cannot by one hour change the time of your death. You're still going to die at the appointed time. Nothing you can do to change that. Your day is coming. Your moment will come up. And all the worrying about your death in the world will never change that. That's what Jesus has said. What does worry get you? Do you get anything out of it? Make you sleep better? How many of you sleep more peacefully when you worry? Oh man, the best thing I can do is have myself a cup of hypercaffeinated coffee, get myself all gymmed up over some tragic event that's about to happen or I hope is going to happen tomorrow, lay down at night and boom, I'm out like a light and I sleep like a rock all night long. How many of you can say that? None of you can say that. Nobody has ever, ever had a better night's sleep because they worry. How many of you can create money out of thin air by worrying about your bills? Anybody here? I'd like to hire you. <laughs> Nobody can do that. How many of you can change your circumstances or your situation by worrying about them? Can you alter them? No. Most of the time you make them worse. And on top of that, worrying actually just takes stuff from you. It doesn't add anything to you. It doesn't, it doesn't better your circumstance. It just makes them worse because now you're robbed of all your joy. And worry is this cyclical thing where you begin to worry or you begin to get anxious over something and then you start to believe your worries and then you lose confidence in God. And the more confidence you lose in God, the worse your worries become. And the worse your worries become, the more twisted your perception of God becomes in your mind to the point where the God that you think you're worshiping is not even close to the God of the Bible. And you're so caught up in worry and anxiety that you might as well just put an, an idol up on the altar and pray to that God. It's folly. You can't change your circumstances through worrying. You can't better your conditions through worry. It robs you of your joy. It robs you of peace. It robs you of patience. It robs you of your confidence in God. It robs you of all of your sound doctrine and sound images of God. And does it give you an ulcer? Then you've got to drink my lanta. And that's not good tasting stuff. I can still taste that stuff. So drink it like it was a milkshake. Every morning, four times a day, after every, before every meal, after every meal. My lanta all the time. What did I gain from all my worrying? Nothing. Change anything? No. I know I've already quoted Spurgeon, but i got some good Spurgeon stuff, and so i got to give this to you. Spurgeon said, A doubting, fretful spirit takes from us the joys we have. We have not all that we could wish, but you have still more than you deserve. Your circumstances are not what they might be, but still they're not even now as bad as the circumstances of some others. Isn't that the truth? Of all the self-torture, Spurgeon says, that of importing future trouble into the present account is perhaps the most insane. Of all the self-torture, that of taking tomorrow's troubles and making them today's is the most insane. Why is that insane? Because then I have to live with tomorrow's troubles and today's troubles today. And tomorrow, I still have to face tomorrow's troubles. But then we only have half the load because we get into tomorrow and we say, I'm glad I don't have yesterday's troubles. Now I have today's troubles, but those aren't sufficient. So I'll take tomorrow's troubles and import them into today. What folly is that? That's just foolishness. I say this to my own shame. I do the same thing you do. We take tomorrow's worries and make them today's. Of all the self-torture, Spurgeon says, that's the most insane. Again, Spurgeon says, as we feel a thousand deaths in fearing one, so do we feel a thousand afflictions in the fear of sorrows which will never come. Probably the major part of our griefs are born, nourished, and perfected entirely in an anxious, imaginative brain. Many of our sorrows are not woven in the loom of providence, but are purely homespun and the pattern of our own invention. Some minds are specially fertile in self-torture. They have the creative faculty for all that is melancholy, despondent, and wretched. 
End quote. Hear that? Most of our griefs we never bear in reality. You know where we bear them? Right up here. You know how many times I've died up here? Thousands. That's what Spurgeon said. I've buried myself a thousand times in my own brain. All because of worry. Why? I worry about my death. How many of you bear more griefs through worrying than you actually do in reality? It's the truth. I have worried about things that have never come to pass. Not even close. I have lost sleep. Whole nights of sleep. Worrying about something that never happened in reality. Yet I have borne all of the emotional grief. I have gone through all of the anxiety. And I have suffered all of the torture of dealing with that issue as if I really had to deal with it when I didn't have to deal with it at all. But I made myself deal with it. Why? Because I worried. Isn't that lunacy? It's just foolishness. We do that to ourselves. Again, and this is my last quote from Spurgeon. They stab themselves with imaginary daggers. They starve themselves in imaginary famines and even bury themselves in imaginary graves. Such strange creatures are we that we probably smart more under the blows which never fall upon us than we do under those which do actually come. The rod of God does not smite us as sharply as the rod of our own imagination does. Our groundless fears are our own chief tormentors. And when we are enabled to abolish our self-inflictions, then all the afflictions of the world become light enough. That's beautiful stuff right there. That's why he was the Prince of Preachers, because he could say stuff like that. That's the truth. We have smitten ourselves with more griefs than the rod of God has ever given to us. And you know where we do it? Right up here in our minds. In our minds. Now, friends, I want you to understand something. What we're talking about is not unattainable. Be anxious for what? Nothing. This is not an unattainable goal. Paul did it. Jesus did it. Countless saints through the ages have done it. You can do it too. There is a promise of peace attached to verse 7, 6 and 7. If we do this and if we pray about everything, what? The peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus. That's, those are not empty words. There's a promise that's attached to that. This is something that you and I can bank on. This is an attainable goal. If it weren't attainable, the Apostle Paul would never have told the Philippians not to worry about anything. Paul didn't worry about anything. He wasn't concerned about the things that you and I are concerned about. But, we say to ourselves, no, I can't do this. Oh, yes, you can Yes, you can. That's our new president's motto. Yes, you can. You need to remember that too when it comes to not worrying. Yes, you can do this. You say, no, I'm a victim of my thoughts. I can't control my thinking. No, you can. Now, friends, I know I've said a lot of... We're going to look in a couple verses uh, away from this at the reality that we control what we think about. We do. We control what we think about. We're not victims of our minds. We control our minds. We have to control our minds, or our minds will control us, and that's not a good thing. We, uh, I've said a lot of things that I'm sure are very difficult for some of you to swallow. And since I'm serving those up, let me serve up one more and get them all out here on the table before we're done. Here's the last one. Friends, if this is a conclusion I've come to. I think this is biblical. If you worry, if you are a worrier, you are a worrier by choice. By choice. We control what we think about. And the Bible tells us, 
Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. And if I worry, it is because I am choosing to worry. And here's what happens. I choose to worry. And then through my worry, my perspective of God, my perspective of reality, my perspective of truth, all gets shaded. It gets jaded. And that causes me to worry more because no longer do I see the truth for what it is. And so then the more worry comes in and the more clouded becomes my perspective of God and the more clouded becomes my perspective of God, the more what? The more worried I become. And it becomes a downward spiral that can take you all the way to the bottom. Now all I've done so far is describe to you the, the curse of anxiety. The curse of it. It is a curse. We spent, I spent, I don't know how long, too long, obviously, talking to you about this because I want you to see it for what it is. I want you to see it for what it is so that you can hate it for what it is and dislike it and enter into this and realize, hey, this is what this is. This is serious business. And if we don't hate it for what it is and because we see it for what it is, then we start to worry and it will eventually destroy you. It can destroy you. And it will if you let it become such a vexing thing to you. It will curse your life. It's a curse. And we'll look at its cure next week. They said, Jim, what if you die or I die before next week? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Actually, the cure is not all that difficult. It's in the next phrase. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's the cure for anxiety. There's a cure for it. We'll spend the time looking at what that is next week. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank You for the healthy reminder from Your Word of just what worry is. It is an enemy to us. We don't want to worry, but we choose to do so. And we do so in disobedience to You and in the fallenness of our own hearts. It vexes us and we hate what we see inside of our own hearts when it comes to our perception of You and our perception of truth. And all that manifests itself through how we deal with life's issues. And we know that Your desire is not to take us out of difficult circumstances, but to Empower us and strengthen us and teach us to trust you through them. So we pray, God, that through what we have seen here today, that you would encourage us toward living a worry-free life, to seeing you for who you are. The cure for our anxiety is not in a stoic self-discipline to not worry, but in understanding truth and entrusting ourselves to you, which we do so today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.